it's great to see you guys tonight. Hope everybody's doing well. I know that things are uh, coming to the end here. There's a lot going on. So I want to I say thanks for taking the time to be with us tonight. We're, we're going to be talking about anxiety. So if you are feeling anxious about life right now in any, in any way, you, you come to the right place. We are a place where anxious people come and we try to seek the Lord Jesus. We're continuing our conversation about joy, about the, the feeling, the sensation of exhilaration and fullness and satisfaction and peace. That thing that we are searching for, that we're striving for, that we're made for. And we've been talking this semester about how true and lasting joy is only found in the Lord Jesus. And so tonight we're going to see that we experience joy as we rest in God's peace. And we're going to look at Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty famous passage. If you're someone who likes to memorize scripture, this is probably one of the ones that you have memorized at some point. Uh, but if you have your Bible or your handout or a device, it would be great if you could get Philippians 4, 4 through 7 in front of you. Starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for uh, the stability it gives us, for the rock it is to stand on. I pray that you would be at work through it right now through your spirit, so that we might love you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And what I like to say, which I forgot to say, is that this is God's word, and it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. As I'm uh, spending some time this week thinking about stress and anxiety, it's not a fun thing to think about necessarily. I think the most stressful place that I can imagine is Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the, as you probably know, the highest peak in the world. It's just over 29,000 feet high. It actually gets a little bit higher every year because of geology. I don't understand. That's just what they tell me. It gets a little higher every year. It's a little over 29,000 feet. This is about the same height that uh, like a commercial jet flies. Okay, And every year, uh, these, these days, five or six or 700 people go and they try to climb to the top of Mount Everest. And so you, you arrive at base camp at Mount Everest. Uh, you, you probably fly into Kathmandu and then you take some buses or something and you hike up to base camp. Base camp is at an elevation of 17,000 feet. If, that's higher than already any point in the continental U.S. So if you've, have any of you guys like skied or hiked in Colorado, you maybe have been to uh, you know, 8,000 feet elevation, 10,000 feet, 12,000 feet. Uh, and you, you know that if you have done that, you know that feeling of like you just can't get your breath. You just feel fatigued. You feel dehydrated. You have a headache. You, you just don't have as much energy. It's because as you go up, air pressure decreases and the amount of oxygen in the air goes down, right? So we're talking a mile above Colorado is where you start out. And from there, you got to go another like two miles up into the sky. And so you start at base camp and you go to camp one, which is like 20,000 feet. Then you go to Camp 2, which is 23,000 feet. You're now higher than any mountain not in the Himalayas. And then you go to Camp uh, 3, which is 23,000 or 24,500 feet. Camp 4 is 26,000 feet. And then uh, you got 3,000 more feet to go. Anything above 26,000 feet, they call it the death zone. 
Because when you are at that elevation, you are starting to die. And so literally, you're just trying to get to the top and back before you die. And if you're up there for more than two days, you're going to die, okay? The, the air pressure is so low at that height that the, the amount of oxygen in the air is like 30% of what it is at sea level. So every breath that you take while you're trying to climb a mountain, you're getting 30% of the air that you're used to. And your body starts to shut down. You can't keep your extremities warm. You, your heart is beating like three times as fast as it should. It's beating like 200 beats per minute the whole time you're climbing. You burn 15,000 calories the day you climb to this up. That's like more than you do when you run a marathon. And a warm day on the summit is like minus 10, minus 15. A cold day is like minus 40, minus 50. And as you are climbing, you are literally climbing past the dead bodies of people who tried to summit and didn't make it. Because at that height, it is impossible to, to carry someone down. Because your, your strength as a human is so limited, your capacity is so diminished. It's an incredibly stressful place. And there are all these circumstances about it that make it inc- incredibly anxious to try to do. Okay? And so what these people do is they pay a lot of money, like $50,000, $60,000, for these expedition teams to try to mitigate those circumstances to make it less stressful. So they pay money to have people cook their food. They pay money to have their tents set up. They pay money to have bottled oxygen schlepped up to these various camps so that they're there waiting for them so they can use oxygen like a fighter pilot does on a mask once they get above about 23,000 feet. They, they wear all this like fancy warm clothes. They wear crampons to grip the, grip the ice. They've got safety ropes. They've got guides. They've got harnesses. They've got Sherpas. There were these local Nepali and Tibetan people who were born and bred at high altitude and are just like made for the mountains and can handle this stuff. And so you're spending $60,000 to try to make this incredibly stressful thing less stressful, okay? That's college. <laughs> we are at 26,000 feet. We're in the death zone. We're, in, we're surrounded by really, really stressful circumstances. We're surrounded by circumstances that make us anxious, and we are just frantically trying to mitigate it. We're just frantically trying to make those circumstances a little bit less stressful, so I imagine that for many of you around this time of year, one of the things that is a little stressful that's making you a little anxious is school. Spoiler alert, exams start in 11 days. You need to understand this. If this is news to you, let's talk. We can pray afterwards, okay? Uh, you got exams coming up. You guys got interviews happening. You got unknowns about the future. You got relationships that are making you so stressed out. You got parents that are making you so anxious. You got questions that you have about life and God and the world that are making you anxious. You got problems with your health that are making you anxious. You just had fancy dress. You didn't do any schoolwork. What were you thinking? You know, like we, we're all feeling this, right? And so, what are we doing? We're just, this week, we're frantically trying to mitigate our circumstances. We're tra- frantically trying to see how we can get this anxiety to go away. That's mostly what we spend our time on. Even when we're distracting ourselves when we're going out and drinking, even when we're distracting ourselves when we're watching two or three too many episodes on Netflix when we should be studying. I see you. I know it happens. Okay. We're just trying to get rid of that anxiety. That's why we study. That's why we stay up late. That's why we work and plan. That's why we come up with solutions. That's why we worry. That's why we network. We spend our time, our, our, our time trying to decrease the anxiety of our circumstances. But it never goes away, does it? You can never do enough. And so what we're going to see tonight is there's actually a better way to deal with our anxiety. And it actually has 
nothing to do with changing our circumstances. That has everything to do with our posture towards God. That we actually can ex- experience joy even in the midst of our anxiety when we rest in God's peace. And so we're going we're gonna to look at three ways that we do this tonight. Okay, Three ways. We celebrate, we pray, and we love. I wanted to make it eat, pray, love like the book slash movie. It just it didn't work. It just didn't fit. It was too much of a stretch. But I want you to know always thinking about it. Okay, Celebrate, pray, love. You with me? Okay. So first, we celebrate. Paul, Paul starts out with this incredible, incredible statement in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Couldn't be more emphatic about it. And when Paul says rejoice here, he doesn't just mean have joy inside your heart, which is what, of course, we're working towards. He's talking about the act of rejoicing. He's talking about rejoicing together. He's talking about celebrating. He's talking about partying. He's talking about what it means as to come together and to make joy with each other, which is what a celebration is. And so one of the ways that we combat our anxiety is by celebrating God's work in our lives. So I want to ask you a couple questions. My first question is this. Do, do you thank God after he answers your prayers? How many times have you prayed for a conversation, prayed for an exam, prayed for an interview, prayed for a sporting event, and then it goes okay, and then there's no more praying at the end of it? You're just happy it went well? We forget to look back and to remember that God is the one who is giving us all the good gifts in our life. When God answers a prayer, when he does something in your life, do you mark that occasion? Do you celebrate it? Do you share it with your friends? Do you talk about it the way we talk about the other things that happen to us in our lives? There's this cycle when you read through the Bible, especially if you read through books like Samuel, and, um, especially like Kings and Chronicles, where you've got these kings, of, these kings of Israel, and they get in a tough scrape, and things are really bad, and so they cry out to God to rescue them. And God hears their prayer, and he rescues them. And then when everything is good, they kind of forget about God. And then eventually they get into a really tough scrape again. And so they call out to God in desperation. And God hears them. And God rescues them. And everything is good and they kind of forget God and they walk away. And they get into a tough scrape and they call out to God. And it's like it happens again and again and again. It almost makes you crazy when you read it. You want to shake these guys and be like, what are you doing? Why do you keep forgetting? We do this in our life all the time though, right? That once things get resolved, once one of these anxious circumstances gets mitigated in our lives, we forget to celebrate. We forget to thank God. We forget to mark that occasion. Our, our culture celebrates, I think, really arbitrary things. I, I try to spend some time thinking about what are things that everyone celebrates. People celebrate when their sports team that they like wins a game. Uh, so I guess that one kind of makes sense to me. I started thinking, what does is, what is everybody celebrate in our country? Everybody celebrates New Year's Eve. I don't really know why. It's not that big of a deal. It's just like the day is changing, and on your iPhone the next day it'll say 18 instead of 17. Nothing has changed. No significant thing has happened. No one has accomplished anything. Let's throw a party for the whole world. That makes no sense to me. We also do that with birthdays. You've been alive some more days. Like, congratulations. I, I, I don't know what the big deal is, okay? We... We love to celebrate. We're like looking for something to celebrate. But we like pick things that don't even have that much meaning, like the changing of a number. And we forget to celebrate God's goodness. We forget to celebrate what he is and what he's done. 
Coates was reminding us that, that this is Holy Week, that this is Easter weekend. This is the greatest week of celebration in the world. So it's cool that we're talking about this tonight. And what I want to encourage you to do is to think about this week as a week of celebration. In the midst of everything that you have going on, in the midst of your schoolwork, to think about this week as a week of celebration. Thursday night is the night that the church celebrates that the Lord Jesus broke bread and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he poured a cup of wine and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the night he washed his disciples' feet and showed us what it means to serve. That the church all around the world on Friday is celebrating what we call Good Friday. The best day ever, which of course was the worst day ever when the one innocent man to ever live was convicted and murdered and hung on a cross out of love for you and me. And then we celebrate Easter morning on Sunday. And Easter is not about bunnies, and it's not about baskets, and it's not about eggs. It is about victory over death. And Jesus' victory over death, if you believe in him, is your victory over death. And Jesus' ascension to life, if you believe in him, is your ascension to life. And so the power that we have of life now, of his spirit in us, is possible because of Easter. And so I want to encourage you to make this week about celebrating what God is and what he's done for you in Christ. Because what that does is it changes our perspective on how we think about the circumstances in our life. It reminds us that the things that will bring us life are not getting through our final projects. It's the Lord. And when we celebrate that together, it fills our memories with his goodness for us. And the hope is that that continues with us so that every time something good happens in our lives, we're not just celebrating ourselves. We're not just relieved. We're celebrating what God has done. It builds that confidence in who he is. So first we celebrate. The second thing we do is we pray. Kids do these funny things where they, they learn how to say a word, but they learn the wrong definition of it. My, my daughter Caroline, who's almost two, she has learned the word help. So she can say, like, Daddy, I help. But when she says, Daddy, I help, she means, I want to do this by myself. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. If you try to intervene, I'm going to scream until the house falls down. Like, that's what she means when she says, I help. I help means I'm doing it on my own. And so when she's trying to zip up her jacket, when she's trying to put her shoes on, or when she's trying to come down the steps in her footy pajamas, which are very non-textured, she says, and I'll reach my hand out, she said, Daddy, I help. And that means, get that hand away from me. Okay? <laughs> now, sometimes, Daddy needs to stop being a helicopter parent. I need to back away. I need to let her do it, because she can, because she's a big kid now. Right? You're a big kid, yes. Sometimes I need to do that. Uh, other times, I need to let her fail. Because she has to learn her limitations. She has to learn boundaries. She has to learn what's safe. She has to learn how to deal with the emotions of not getting what she wants. This is really important. There are other times where she really needs help. Because she cannot get into those shoes by herself. And because if she tries to come down frontwards in her foot of pajamas, she's going to bite it hard. It happens all the time. And so you have these weird moments where she is, she is standing next to me. And I'm saying, let daddy help you. And she refuses to accept it. And then she falls. We do this with God all the time. Or we have a God who is right next to us, who is ready to offer his hand to us, and we are telling him, God, I've got this. I don't need you right now. I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I'm good-looking enough. I'm successful enough. I, I don't need you. Sometimes we get through it on our own strength. Sometimes 
we fall, but we have failed. And a lot of times, it, the tragic reality is that when our anxiety goes up, our prayerfulness goes down. Because when we get busy, when we get stressed, all of a sudden, I, I don't have time. I just don't have time to be with the Lord. So the times when we need him the most, we tend to pray the least. We forget to ask God for help. Other times we don't pray, we don't think it's appropriate to come to God with things that are trivial. Like there's big things happening all over the world. Certainly I don't need to pray to God about the cold that I have or about the presentation I have to give or about the interview or about how my ankle's a little sore or about how this like weird twitch in my shoulder and I can't seem to... Like that's not really important to God. But what, what we read in verse, in verse 5 is this. Oh, sorry, in verse 6 is this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. What are you supposed to pray for? What are the, what are the categories of your prayers? Anything and everything, the Bible says. N.T. Wright says, if it matters to you, it matters to God. Why? Of course, because you matter to God. And so one of the reasons we're anxious is because we are trying to do things on our own and our Father is standing right next to us with an outstretched hand and we are saying, I've got this, I'm just going to work harder. I've got this, I'm just going to figure it out. And he's ready, to, he's ready to help us. He's ready to extend his hand. Sometimes we don't pray because we're just embarrassed. Because it seems silly. We're embarrassed because it seems weak. We're embarrassed because we've already prayed for this a bunch of times and it hasn't gone the way we wanted and we're starting to feel silly about it. We forget to pray. We avoid doing it. So what we need to do is we need to spend time daily bringing the things that make us anxious before God in prayer. And, and I've, got, I've got two suggestions for you on, on the ways to think about this. The, the first is that, and Paul says that we do this in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The greatest weapon against anxiety is gratitude. You've heard the phrase, count your blessings. It's something that like a grandma would say. We need to count our blessings. It means we, we need to list off the things that are our blessings. We need to remember and thank God for the things that are good in our lives. And it will show us that the exam that is looming is not the only thing going on in your life. It will remind you of how much God cares about you. And it will improve your relationship with him. We actually have to spend time counting our blessings, thinking, listing praying those things that we are grateful for. It will combat our anxiety. The second thing is I, I want to encourage you is to think about, and I'm thinking about this Easter week, I'm thinking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed when he goes to pray. His disciples all fall asleep. He's right before he gets arrested where Judas comes and betrays him and he gets arrested. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Like, God, I, I am anxious. Do you know that Jesus was anxious? He is filled with sorrow about what is about to happen. And he prays that God would take it from him. And then he says, what? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We have got to start learning how to pray your will be done prayers as we bring our request to God. As we're praying for an exam, as we're praying for an interview, as we're praying for a friend, as we're praying for ourselves to change, as we're praying for the world, we have to come to God honest with our desires, and then we have to learn how to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Because as we pray that, it starts to change our hearts. It actually starts to cultivate in us what we want, which is trust that God is the Lord, that he is in charge, and that he is good. 
It helps us to trust that his plans are better than ours, even if we don't get it. That his plans are better than ours, even if we don't see it. Even if it's not obvious to us. That kind of prayer actually starts to build the confidence that we need. That's the antidote for our anxiety. So we celebrate and we pray. Thirdly, we love. Here's what, here's what we read in verse, in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That seems like kind of a random phrase to me to be in this like exciting passage about rejoicing and trusting in God and be reasonable. Being reasonable is not cool. No one has ever been like, man, Collins, you know him? He's the man. He's so reasonable. Like that's not a thing that, that's not a thing that we say. It's just, what is, I don't know what the logic, I don't know what you think of when you think, when I, when I think of the word reasonable, the thing I think of is the reasonableness from Parks and Rec, which is a cult of people in Pawnee, Indiana, that believe that there's this 28-foot lizard named Zorp who's in charge of the universe and has a volcano for a mouth, and he's going to eventually come and melt the earth. That's what I think of. I don't know why. Nothing to do with Paul. It's just what I thought of. Here's what, here's what Paul means when he says reasonable, okay? He's talking about a, a posture, a demeanor of humility and gentleness and putting others before yourself. Right before this passage, you, you get this interesting thing where he's addressing these, these two women, Udiah and Synecdoche, who, who apparently have been in some kind of conflict. And he's urging them to agree in the Lord. He, he's talking about, he's following that up here. He's talking about how we treat other people. Be reasonable. Don't just think about yourself. Don't be overbearing. Don't diminish others. No, approach other people with humility and gentleness, putting their needs above your own. That's love. That's what the definition of love is, is putting other people before yourself. And so what we're called to do here to combat anxiety is to love others, to put others before ourselves. Which means that you need to be thinking, in these two weeks, as the pressure is mounting... As the temperature is going up, as you are climbing further up that mountain and the air is getting thin, who is that person that you have been meaning to reach out to? What's that conversation you've been meaning to have? That person you've been wanting to have lunch with? That favor that you thought about doing three weeks ago and you never ended up doing it? Do it this week. Because what happens is that you will realize that the world is not all about you. You will realize that your circumstances are not as powerful as they seem because there was a whole other world going on with other people who matter. It actually takes away our anxiety, even though it is costly. Even if that's one less hour you're in the library. Love is the recipe for anxiety. Because it puts us back in our right position under God and for the good of others. That's actually what you're made for. That's where you'll experience life. That's where you'll experience joy. Those are the most fulfilling moments that we have. So we celebrate, we pray, and we love. What, is that, what does that get us? Well, Paul says it gets us this. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The celebrating, the praying, and the love, it will lead to this peace of God, which passes all understanding. It, it passes all understanding because it has nothing at all to do with our circumstances. That's why it doesn't make sense. We don't have peace because everything's just fine. We have peace because of who God is. 
Because he is in control of the universe, not Zorp. Because he is good. Because he hears us. Because he is with us. Now in Christ, and this is important to say, in Christ there's no guarantee that there won't be suffering or hardship. In Christ there's no promise that the answers to all our prayers will be, yes, sure, here you go. It's often not the case. The promise is that he is the Lord. That he hears us when we call to him. That he cares about us. That he's given us everything we need in Christ. And that even as we go through all these circumstances that cause us anxiety, his presence is in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's with us now. He's with us when we study, when we succeed and when we fail. When we stumble and when we follow in faithfulness. He is with us in all these moments. And he loves us. And so you actually can experience a calm in the midst of the storm. You actually can sleep deeply. You actually can lower your heart rate and your blood pressure. Because Jesus is the Lord. He is on the throne and he is good. One of the interesting things about climbing Mount Everest is that you can't just show up to base camp at 17,000 feet and then climb up to the top the next day. It takes five days to climb up to the top. But what you do is when you get to base camp, you hang out for like two weeks. And you just sit around and eat and go on walks. For two weeks. And then you hike up to camp one. And then you hike back down. And you hang out at base camp for like another week. And then you hike up to camp two. And you spend the night. And then you come back down to base camp and you hang out for like another week or so. And then you hike up to camp three and you spend the night. And you come back and you wait for two weeks. And you rest. And then you go. And then you go one, two, three, four, summit. And then all the way back down to base camp. So what you have to do is you have to let your body acclimate to the altitude. And so as you're going up to Camp 1 and to Camp 2, as you're going up in altitude, 20,000 feet, 23,000 feet, 24, 5, you're, you're exposing your body to conditions that it is not used to. And you're, what it does is it makes the body produce more red blood cells. So by the time you're ready to go for the summit, your, your blood is literally thicker. You've got twice as many red blood cells so that even though you've got 30% oxygen, you're able to absorb a little bit more of it. And if you were to just walk from sea level to 29,000 feet, you'd be dead in 30 minutes. But if you acclimatize over the course of two months, a human can survive going up to the top and back. That's what, that's what we have to do. We have to acclimatize ourselves within God's love to prepare ourselves for the hardships that are to come. That, guys, that's what college is. This is your chance to acclimatize. This is your chance to seek God to pursue life in Jesus, to prepare you for what comes next. I, I think you probably know this in your head somewhere. It only gets harder from here. The stakes only go up. The pressure only goes up. The oxygen level just goes down. The circumstances that bring you anxiety now are only going to grow. And so as I'm thinking, especially about you seniors, but for any of us, as we're considering the lives that we are headed towards, the goals that we have, the best thing you can do to prepare for them is to abide in the love of Jesus. It's to celebrate who he is. It's to pray to him anything and everything with thanksgiving, praying that his will will be done. It's to live a life of love for others because we live under the lordship of Christ who has given his life for us who prays for us, who serves us, who delights in us. He is the Lord and he is good. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we're grateful that in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of the circumstances of our life, there is a chance for peace. I pray that you would help us to identify and repent of the ways we are frantically trying to just fix our circumstances to make them less anxious, and that you would help us to seek you, to celebrate and to remember everything good that you have done for us, that you would make us prayers, that you would make us prayer warriors, that you would give us hearts that are so instinctive and desperate to bring anything and everything that concerns our hearts to you. Lord, I pray that you give us hearts of love. That you would make us more like Christ who didn't consider his own needs but considered ours and so gave everything for us in his death on the cross. Lord, help us to, to prepare to worship and celebrate you this Easter. We praise you that you are the one who has conquered death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.